When Tim Chappell was 13, he was mesmerised by the beauty and creation bursting from the pages of an edition of Vogue. This awakening steered the young artist away from aspirations of becoming a botanist and pointed him towards the alchemy of a hot glue gun and glitter, fabric and fabulousness, and into the world of costume design. Tim Chappell is one of Australia's leading costume designers and has designed for feature films, TV series, theatre, musicals and music video clips. He was awarded the Academy Award and Australian Film Institute Award for his costume design of The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. For the stage musical adaptation, Chappell was rewarded again with Broadway's coveted Tony Award for his inspired design and creation. It is a career that has reached beyond Australian platforms to be showcased in the West End, on Broadway and celluloid splendour in Hollywood. Chapel continues to create vivid worlds on various canvases. He relishes too the opportunity to train a new generation of costume designers, imparting a knowledge built on invention, spectacle and an inimitable style. Stages was thrilled to meet Tim and to garner a unique insight into the art of the costume designer and reflect on a celebrated career. Thanks for this time. I really appreciate it. Right. How was your morning? Frantic. Are you, are you working Frantic. on a job at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on The Masked Singer. Oh, great. We're a little, yeah, we're a little understaffed and uh, we're in Melbourne, so we're in the middle of lockdown, which is creating a whole ocean of pain. But the funny thing is, is it's the only show you can really make during COVID because they've all got masks on. Yeah. <laughs> on the masked mask singer. Tell me, Tim, do you have a favourite plant? A favourite plant? Oh, my God, that is... There are so many. Yeah. Flowers um, or trees? Everything. Uh, my favourite the plant I'm most obsessed with is is called the sunshine durus. Right. It is a terrestrial orchid that was extinct until the 80s when they discovered it growing beside uh, the railway tracks in sunshine. And it was once so prolific that they used to call it the fragrant durus and people would sell bunches of it as cut flowers and then drove it to extinction and they rediscovered it. And it's got this whole, I could go on for hours, it's got this amazing history of, of rebirth. It's like a phoenix. Does it only flower um, periodically, I mean, every couple of years or something? Is it that plant? Well, it's a, it's a terrestrial orchid, so it flowers when the conditions are right at the same time each year. But uh, because it grows out of the ground like a lily, um, it's very prone to things like rabbits and goats and stuff like that. And um, what had happened is they had, <clears throat> they'd located this one location that only had like five plants in it. And that was the only place it existed in the entire world. And they fenced it off with hurricane wire. And then it had, then two years later, it only had three plants. And two years later, it only had two plants. And then somebody came and doused the whole thing in petrol. Oh, wow. And set it aflame. And then it had 12 plants. A survivor. Well, it's a plant. it needed some botanist knew they were killing off this endangered, this critically endangered orchid and realised that it needed to be burnt to 
reproduce and it did and uh, now they've got a few populations spread around um, the basalt plains of Melbourne. Do you have a garden? Yep. You spend much time in it? I spend daily. And my, yeah, like when I'm not working, I spend a lot of time in my garden. That, that's the way that you restore yourself, your downtime. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love my garden. It was when we bought the houses uh, two years ago, one side was bitumen and the other side was concrete, and that was it. And now we have to literally get a machete and cut things back. You know, so wild. Because as a kid, you harboured a desire to be a botanist, didn't you? Oh, my God, you've done the research. Yes, I did. <laughs> what was it at such a young age that um, seduced... How did nature seduce you so much? Um, I've always been in very nature-oriented. Um, there's a naturalist... There's an, a naturalist who was an illustrator who helped Darwin. He was also kind of inventor one of the influences of Art Deco, like have you ever seen like Lyrebird, balcony, yeah. balustrades and things, and things like uh, um, birds' nest ferns in ceilings and stuff like that. Well, that was all due to his illustration work. Heckel, Ernst Heckel, H-A-E-K-L-E. Um, anyway, so I've, I saw some, I must have seen some of his work. My family were very science-oriented. Um, and I used to just love, because I lived out in the far western suburbs of Melbourne, I used to love going out into bush, remnant bushland and discovering things that still existed. And that's where my love of terrestrial orchids came from. Because nature has a great influence on design, doesn't it? Yeah, massively. And especially have, me. Have you been to Barcelona and seen Sagrada Familia? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. extraordinary, um, the way that Incredible. Gaudi has been influenced by, by nature? Yeah, yeah, and uh, beautifully executed. How did you find um, a copy of French Vogue at Flinders Street Station? Oh, you really have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> was it, was it, it just lying there or was it in a shop? No, no, it was literally just laying there. On a, someone must have forgotten it because it would have been expensive. Um, but it wasn't just like, like a crappy Australian fashion magazine. It was, I mean, it may not have been French folk, but it was a proper fashion magazine, which I'd never seen before. And yeah, it changed everything. So what was it about those pages that spoke to you? Gee, it's hard to explain. I, I think I just realized that I wanted that life and I loved the look of those people. And I was always artistic and I, I always drew. As a kid, I drew a lot of things in nature. And I guess it all kind of made sense because I loved orchids and I loved uh, structure in nature. And then when I looked at fashion, it works in a similar kind of way. Um, you're just dealing with form, spatial relations and form and structure and repetition, pattern, colour, it it's all the same. Yeah, those pages, I mean, would be similar to flicking through a, a, a series of flowers or something, those garments that have yeah. shapes and colours and, yeah. Yeah, speak and express different things and, yeah. Where did you grow up? 
everywhere, all over the place. I'm a, I'm an army brat, so I live. I went to eight different schools, and um, yeah, everywhere. I lived in every city. In I lived in Malaysia for a few years, and we settled in Melbourne when I was ten. Lived there until I was fourteen, and then moved to Northern Beaches, New South Wales, which is where I count being from. Oh, okay. But yes, yes. If you if you need to nominate at home. Yeah. What were the artistic influences in your childhood? Were you going to the theatre or museums, uh, visual arts? No. None of that, nothing. No. Until no. you found... Just nature. Yeah. So Just nature you... and drawing. What were you drawing? I was good. I drew a lot of flowers and birds. I was very good at drawing birds. And, oh, actually, I guess because I used to read a lot as a kid. So I used to draw what I imagined or what I read. I, I used to love the Enid Blyton books, like the magic uh, faraway tree and the magic wishing chair. And I used to write my own and illustrate them. I mean, they were only like you know, five pages long and stuff, but um, yeah, I was able to go from words to images and then, and then describe, which has ended up being what I do for a living. Yeah, yeah. What sort of kid were you? Were you an extrovert, introvert, class clown? All and none. I learned early to not care about what the other kids thought because I would be moving soon anyway. Um, and that ended up being a great source of um, kind of social independence, I guess. I ended up like... Kids used to pick on me in primary school, but by the time I got to my third high school, I had the whole, I didn't even have to try and fit in and had a good time and was able to concentrate on art and stuff, but wasn't either a class clown or an introvert. It was, I wasn't interested. Isn't that weird? Yeah. But you built a resilience to, uh, to survive, to cope yeah. with those kids around you. You know what it is? I guess I was always gay and I always knew it and it caused a lot of trouble to begin with. And then when I realised that there was nothing I could do about it and stopped caring, then it became a great source of power. And then the cool kids at school respected me because I, was, because I wasn't ashamed of being gay. Yeah. And then that changed life a bit. You claimed your individuality. Not intentionally, it just happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when did the shift come from wanting to be a botanist to work in fashion? Literally that day. And right. that day in year eight, because I lived in the far western suburbs of Melbourne, St Stab Albans, and I went to Melbourne High. So it was a three hours a day of travelling. Um, and that day when I found the magazine, I was just like, went, and then I started drawing fashion after that. Stopped drawing birds and flowers and started drawing fashion. So where was your early training in, in fashion design? I went to Sydney College of the Arts and did a Bachelor of Arts Design, um, Fashion and Textile Design. Were folks, your folks supportive of moving into that industry? Not, a, not even a little bit. No, they were, 
they were furious. My fa- well, they weren't super furious because there was no point ever trying to tell me to do anything. But um, I was meant to do botany. And I followed my grandfather and uncles into Sydney High when we moved to Sydney. And then I was meant to go to Sydney University like they did and go and do botany. And then when I told them I was going to be doing fashion instead, they weren't particularly happy. So when you graduated, what, what sort of work were you getting? I, I never graduated. Oh, you didn't graduate? You, le- you left? Yeah. You didn't, left. weren't enjoying it? No. What happened was I was, <laughs> I was dating a producer who worked on a TV show at ABC. He, offered, he said, why don't I go and work at the ABC in the wardrobe department over summer? And I got the job and then I got he- kind of headhunted to go and work on a show called E Street. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, tried to go back to school and work full time. And they were very, school was very unreceptive to that idea. And I was like, well, I'm at school to go and learn to get a job. And I have the job, so I don't need school. So I didn't go back. I, got, I did second year. But I've since gone back to lecture there a bunch of times. Isn't that funny? Yes, it's extraordinary. Well, you know, one of the reasons for doing these podcasts is just to, to let people know there are all sorts of pathways to achieving your dreams, you know, it's, yeah. and they can be very unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I think if you're... I, I, was in a, I'm in a uni, I was in a unique position where the job came up. And the same thing happened to Tony Collette, actually, at NIDA. She was desperate to try and continue her studies because one of the values of continuing your education is it helps you form as an artist or as whatever is the profession that you're heading towards. And I was lucky enough to kind of get what I needed out of it. And the other issue was is that I kind of was always born to be a costume designer, not really a fashion designer. Um, because I would get a weird selection of marks of combinations of A's and F's because everything I did there was so over the top. And they'd be like, this can't be made in a factory. And I'd be like, well, I don't care. So, yeah, so it just ended up being the right decision for me. But I don't think it's the right decision for most people who are at school. So I guess, you know, when you're working in the drag scene in Sydney, you're being able to develop your costume ideas more so rather than fashion, yeah? Um, I developed... The two things I learned from drag was economy and because the, cheap, the cheapest things sparkle the brightest. And I also learned about impact, being able to uh, develop character and create visual impact uh, that was easily, easily consumed visually. And I guess it's restricting you with your budget too. You're, you're being very economic with what oh, you can yeah. spend and create. Yeah. yeah. I can still make a whole outfit for $70. <laughs> <laughs> How did you meet Lizzie Gardner? Uh, she was my boss on East Street. Did you, uh, was there an episode with Chelsea Brown's wedding dress one day? Oh, yeah, that was, you really have done your research. <laughs> yeah, 
I yeah, Chelsea Brown's wedding dress. Uh, we started very. It was a very early shoot on location, and hung up the wedding dress. I'd been awake for thirty six hours making it beforehand, and and Chelsea was inside, and we opened the door of the trailer and all this smoke came billowing out and we could smell this like burning toffee. And she's like, what is that? And somebody had moved the wedding dress to over the makeup mirror and turned the lights on. And so the dress was on fire. But fortunately, because I didn't know a huge amount about fabrics, I'd made it out of lining instead of satin and had used calico as interfacing and only because it was made out of calico did it not completely melt. And um, I'm always kind of quite prepared, so I brought every scrap of fabric with me. And I just did fabulous lace panels down the back where the burns were and took me half an hour and on we went and nobody even knew that I'd set her dress on fire. Well, I didn't set it on fire, but it had been on fire. Brilliant, brilliant. Problem solving on the job. Well, that's what you've got to do in this industry. So the gig that propels you and Lizzie into superstardom is Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the film, that iconic film. How did that gig come about? Well, I was working as a bartender at the Aubrey and making uh, costumes for the drag queens there. And Stefan had seen the the costumes and... uh, so he, he, he liked my style for the costumes, but mostly he hired me because I was cheap because I would be able to make everything. And, um, yeah, then Lizzie came on later for um, in Completion Guarantor, wanted to have a more experienced designer working alongside me, even though I'd already pretty much finished most of it. But, uh, yeah, so she came on board just to make sure that uh, the insurance company was happy. There were some iconic costumes in that film. Um, mm. I'd like to talk about a couple of them if we can. Sure. The thong dress, the famous thong dress, which I believe cost $25. Yeah, probably less than that. What was the genesis uh, of that? I mean, because it's so creative, so imaginative. Yeah, well, that started off as a credit card dress, which Lizzie ended up wearing to the Oscars after all. But the... Long story short, we tried to get credit cards to make the credit card dress and we went to all the credit card companies. We even went to like um, try and get petrol cards and things like that. No, Everyone said no because who would give their cards to a little crappy Australian film about drag queens? And um, then Lizzie was like, thongs. Let's do thongs. And I was like, that's pure genius. And my mum worked at Target, so we got uh, we got the thongs with a 15% discount. What happened to that? What's happened to that dress? Is it in a museum somewhere, I hope? It's at the National Sound and Film Archives in Canberra. Brilliant. You'd never worked on a film before, Priscilla, I believe. Yeah, that was my very first film. I was 24. And then you find yourself winning an Oscar. Yeah. That must yes. have been surreal, that period. It was a crazy time. It was like being shot out of a cannon. And, uh, yeah, it was funny. It was, it was 
a very mixed blessing because before that I was a bartender who made outfits for drag queens and dance party outfits. And then I was an Oscar winning costume designer. So it put me in a strange position. It was wonderful, but it's taken, it took probably 15 years before I really appreciated the significance of the Oscar. Because before you guys, I think there'd only been a couple of Australians, Ori Kelly and John Truscott, yeah. who'd won the Costume That's Design right. Oscar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And since then, there'd been, there's a whole raft of us. Yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So what happened after you won the Oscar? Did that open doors for you in Hollywood? Um, well, was it, like I said, it was, it was a strange time because... I was cashed up. I was living in the closest house to the Hollywood sign. I've got, fanta- I've got a fantastic image I should send so you can put it on your website. Um, yeah. Uh, right under the Hollywood sign and would go to these meetings in boardrooms, terrified. And I was 25 at that point. And I had never, I'd only done this one film about drag queens and was meeting with people about doing these huge multi-million dollar films and I just didn't have enough experience or enough confidence. So how I ended up making money was um, celebrity styling and did super, super well and did that in commercials and then slowly, as I developed more and more confidence, more than experience, um, started doing more films. So when you say celebrity styling, you're talking about the look on the red carpet? and Red carpet, um, editorial, a lot of editorial, commercials. Pamela Anderson was, my, was, was mine for about three years. Right. Life-size mm-hmm. Barbie. It's the dream job. <laughs> how how did the success manifest itself in the young Tim? Did, did you behave yourself? Were you able to keep your feet on the ground? No, I was out of control. Right. Totally out. Well. Huge thing to happen to a kid. It was. It was. And um, at the time, I'd also recently seroconverted and become HIV positive. And at that time, it was... It was the early 90s and people were still dying and it was a death sentence and I was only going to live a few more years. Yeah. So rather than invest my time in developing my career, I just partied, went to Miami, went, you know, <laughs> went to Trinidad, Trinidad and all, all these crazy places and had a great time but never really focused on my career. And then I discovered I wasn't going to die and had to develop a career. You spent about two years in Los Angeles, in Tinseltown. Does it clear all the time? Ten. Ten years. Fourteen years. I I lived there from 1995 until 2006. What's that? Eleven years. Oh, there you go. My research isn't that great then. (laughs) So is it a a town that glitters constantly? Is it a, a, a good place to live? And It's an industry town, isn't it? Well... Okay, for, there's a bunch of things. Being Australian in America is a massive blessing. Um, they hear the accent and you immediately, the moment you open your mouth, you gain uh, credibility. 
because they think we're smart. I don't know where they get that from, but they just think we're smart. Um, you get paid a fortune. Like the money is really great, much better than to this day. You get paid a third to double what you get paid here for the same work. Um, it's highly unionised, so, you know, you don't, you just work normal hours like normal people do rather than in Australia where you do 14-hour days, seven days straight and don't get any overtime, which is expected here. But, yeah, it's a wonderful town. It's very easy place to live. It actually, the gorgeous weather is exhausting because it's perfect and 25 every day of the year. And sometimes you're like, God, I just wish it would rain. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's no wonder, a wonderful town. I miss it. No wonder it was chosen as a, a place to make movies. Yeah, of course. Mm. It's also a great place for vintage cars because they never rust. Tell me about your close encounter with Cher. Oh, Cher was amazing. Um, she's as beautiful in real life as you would think. Apparently, she always wears a wig. So she has a non-wig wig. So she comes to work with a wig on that looks like hair. Um, but when I had my fitting with her, I did a music video called Dove L'Amore in two, 1999, I think. And uh, when I had my fitting with her, her body was immaculate. And she was getting on then too. Um, but it was a funny experience because she didn't know that I had designed a costume for her for this video. And it was meant to be this sort of Spanish theme. And I'd made her this immense two and a half metre across flamenco dress, but it was a pantsuit, flamenco pantsuit. And I turned up on location with my giant um, costume and they said, oh, look, Cher's just bringing something from her stage show. She's just going to wear that. And so what I'd done is I'd done an I had done an illustration of the costume and I just put that on her table in her trailer. And her cranky assistant marched out to me and said, Cher wants to, know, wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went into the trailer and she's like, Jim, what's this? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, sure, I designed that for you. I'm not, they didn't tell you about it. And she's like, go get it. And I got it and we put it on her. And she went, oh, oh, oh I'll wear it. <laughs> and she did. Wow. That's impressive. Because her, her designer of choice, I think, had been Bob Mackey. Yeah, and Bob Mackey totally sabotaged me, even though he was a friend of mine at that point. He gave me... He gave her, his measurements he gave me for her were inaccurate. That's all I can say. Tim, what are yeah. the, the main differences of designing for film and stage? The thing when working in film is you have to be able to picture what you're designing uh, in, through a macro lens and also in massive panorama. So when you think about a, 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 a theatre screen, a cinema screen, uh, a bow, a tie could be blown up to 10 metres across, right? But then in the wide shots, especially when you're working with extras, you have to picture what the costume is going to look like as a tiny dot. 
and everywhere in between. And the big difference between that and film is, I mean, and theatre, is with theatre you have to make sure that what you're trying to say is clearly readable from the back of the theatre, which means you're working with bolder, uh, bolder colours, bolder style lines, um, and cr definitely crisper silhouettes in theatre. The other thing that's funny is that in a film, the costume only needs to last to the end of the shot. But in theatre, it needs to be worn. Now, some, of the, some of the Priscilla costumes, the ones from 2006, are still working. Wow. And they've been worn thousands of times in many different countries. And they're constantly let in and out and repaired and they have all the sequins stripped off and new sequins put on, but it's the same costume. They're beautiful look up close. Yeah. I'm astounded at how much a stage costume can cost also. Oh, yeah. I guess because of that longevity. Yeah. They have to be practical. They have to come on and off quickly. And, yeah, they're, they're built to last. And I guess with a film you can go and buy off the rack, whereas with stage they're all, they're all woke. They're all made especially for that production. Well, that, that, that attitude applies to both film and theatre. It's not either or. If you're going to be working with uh, purchased items, they need to kind of all be purchased items. And if you're going to start, it's either a make or it's a buy because when you put those things side by side, their differences show quite clearly. It's, it can be very jarring. What were the challenges in adapting Priscilla to the stage? Because you'd, you'd had that beautiful Oscar-winning design for the film, and then we're going to make a musical and put it on the, in the theatre. That's funny. Challenges. It, there were, there were, the challenges were, how do I top everything? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People, are, thing people was, have expectations. Yeah, yeah, bloody expectation. <laughs> it's a driving force in my life. It's always other people's. Um, yeah, the, uh, it was a great opportunity to go and revisit things from the film that I was, uh, wasn't happy with. And also using things that people loved and expected to see on stage as a launching point to go in totally different directions. You were able to uh, develop the Gumby dress from the film? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what that, did you do that, there? Well, that was literally... Um, reproduced in, but in better quality. And then at the end of that number, which is the closing of the first act, there's a parade of Gumby's all different kinds. That's how they expanded on that one. Something we didn't see in the film was the Colour My World paintbrushes. All the how, cupcakes. And cupcakes. How did they, uh, what's the genesis there? Um, well, the Colour My World, that was really interesting because in the film, he uh, Hugo's is he throwing ha having throwing handbags or something. Anyway, so in the musical, they were going to have him throw a handbag, and the original design was it was all of the things that would live inside a drag queen's handbag come to life. So there was like breath mints and um, perfume and makeup brushes and stuff, and. 
<laughs> once the wardrobe budget, once it surged past a million dollars, because you had a, a relatively large budget compared to the film, too, I guess. Yeah, well, the film was twenty grand, and and we ended up spending one point four million on the very first Australian production of the costumes. But uh, they said, "Look, we've we've hit a million, and you, <laughs> we, we're not going to make your purse. So come up with another concept." And I mean, it's kind of obvious from there. So it's color my world. So like, there was paintbrushes and the brush, the painting the bus pink and uh but the interesting thing on that one was i worked quite closely the usually the choreographer leads and tells you what you can and can't do in a number but on priscilla we had a really great uh working relationship where i would show him designs and go look this is going to be very hard to move in and he's like oh that's good no we can because it looks like Marie Antoinette, it gives us a whole other scope of movements we can explore. And he was like, oh, it's a bit like Marie Antoinette, it's a bit like a hula skirt. So all of the choreography is based on those kind of moves from that kind of oeuvre. 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 Uh, so for the first time, I guess you are, you're designing for dancers, aren't you? So there's got to be that consideration of can they move? How can they yeah. express themselves? Yeah. yeah, well, that, and and I have to say, as I've matured as a designer, I now consider the movement as much as any other element of the design, but whether it's a film or whether it's stage. The way, the poetry of way a costume moves on a person's body uh, is something that really is centre of my focus now. All of those Priscilla costumes are, are magnificent. Their inventiveness, and, and they all have their own personality. Thank you. Yeah, they, they, all my little babies. <laughs> <laughs> They've done well. They've done well. As a designer, you're not responsible just for the body. I imagine it extends to all the accessories, handbags, wigs, shoes, gloves, yeah? Shoes are my bet noir because I so often have to go back to the curse, the, the absolute curse of my existence is a chorus shoe. I hate them. I hate yeah. chorus shoes. But you always end up to having to put girls, they'll be in some beautiful modern thing and in a chorus shoe. Because dancers feed the precious. So you've, got to give them, you've got to give them what they need. And the chorus shoe has no personality. No, zero, no matter what you do to it. How do you find your colour palette and the textures that you want to work with for whatever job? Um, well, I, I'm very drawn, I'm, I'm known for and drawn to a very clear colour palette, a lot of primaries and secondary colours, but I'm not very, I don't have very sophisticated colour tastes. Everything's bright. Now, that's why I do drag. I do drag queens and children's shows a lot because <laughs> so those palettes appeal to them. Yeah, the costumes can pop. Yeah, yeah. What's the process of working with other designers? The lighting designer, the set designer. Uh, I imagine that's quite a, a process of collaboration. Oh, I have to say that working in this industry is the collaborative part that is, makes it so wonderful. 
Um, there've been times when I've not been happy with the way a dress looks on stage and I can go to the lighting designer and ask for their help. And quite often they can hit it with a different color and fix it, fix things. The director might hate it and just changing, changing up the colors or the way something is lit and take something from being a disaster to being a total winner. Um, it's a tight family. And if you don't work collaborative, collaboratively with your production designer and your lighting designer, it's going to be a disaster. And why would you bother? Just go yeah. and be an artist. <laughs> when I've done a play or a musical, my favourite moment is that first time you put the costume on and you can sort of, the, the character is complete after weeks of rehearsal. Is that the yeah. same for, for you, that, that, that moment when the costume's completed and an actor wears it? Well, I'm, my collaboration isn't just with the other design, designers of the show. I, I work really closely with um, my talent. And that's part of when I talk about movement, I'm very close to the wearer of the costume now because they have to wear it. Yeah. And sometimes that process is led by me. Sometimes that process is led by them. And in really great situations, it's in the middle where they'll bring something to the table. I'll, I'll draw something up. Um, but what's like Tony Collette's a great one. So she's very straight up. You'll be, I can draw 20 things for her and she'll um and ah, but I'll make a few. And when you hit the right mark, her whole posture changes wow. in the mirror. Yeah. And she just, and she doesn't even have to say anything. I go, oh, we both look, we, but, Without words, they're like, there she is. There's the character. The costume is the second great. skin. Yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, arming your actor. There's the tools of the, for the actor. Because it's not just the out... People often think of the costume as being the outside part, but the underwear and the shoes. Underwear is so important, especially if you're doing a period piece. Um you know, corsetry and things like that really influence the way you move and the way you feel in the costume. You're doing a lot of teaching now. What do you enjoy about teaching design? It's, it's oddly enough, it's really helping me hone my craft because yeah. you have to explain it to other people. Yeah. Um, oh, there's just so much to love about it, about teaching. That there's, there are moments when you're teaching and you see a student have a ta-da moment. And you're like, oh, wow. I remember at school when I had those, when they have an epiphany and they go, oh, I get something. And that just, that is more satisfying than anything with design, I have to say. Yeah, great, great. Now, where do you keep your Oscar and your Tony Award? Um, right now, where are they? Right now... They're in the attic because we're renovating. Fair enough. And they'll be bought out and put on display as soon as you finish, I'm probably sure. Probably covered in floor dust at the moment. <laughs> Do you have a favourite costume? Ever. Yeah, that you've designed, you've, you've created, you've given birth to. I think, I think the Gumby costume from Priscilla. The film, well, the musical, yeah, but the film one first really expressed what I was trying to say about drag 
in Sydney at that time. And at the same time was familiar enough for people to love it, yet was original enough that it wasn't uh, uh, made, it didn't make people uncomfortable. People were able to still celebrate it. Because it was a strange thing, a strange, strange uh, combination of, of um, visual elements. But I loved that costume. Well, thanks, Tim. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you about the process of costume design in your career. Um, really appreciate it. So I'll let you get back to The Masked Singer. Thank you very much, Peter. And uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. How satisfying it was to feature the art of costume design at last on stages. Not to mention our first Oscar winner too. You get it all here on Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft, career and creativity. Join me next time for episode 148 when I get to spend time with a dear mate, colleague and inspiration, Dolores Dunbar. Dolores is a glorious presence in the history of musical theatre in Australia. The original productions of Funny Girl, Fiddler on the Roof and Les Miserables. Along with roles as choreographer on productions of Nonsense and a celebrated teacher of the form with students at the McDonald College. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm and I'll catch you next time.